Yeah, no problem. No problem, my friend. Um, I'm happy to talk about anything and, and good to go. I... Yeah, sure. Okay, so you have an amazing podcast and your Crypto Voices website is quite helpful where you, you, you simplified global monetary base and you, you update and make a show about it every quarter. So thanks for doing that because it helps us people like me to get clarity and on what's going on. So before before we jump in, and can you please uh, walk us through your background? How you got interested in Bitcoin and money in general? Yeah, so um, I'm originally from the United States. I was uh, born and raised there, uh, but after university, uh, which was 2006 for me, I came uh, back to Europe, where my father uh, and his relatives are all from uh, Eastern Europe, which is Latvia. Uh, been over here since then. And, um, I, my day job, I'm, I'm not full-time, uh, crypto, uh, yet. And I'm not sure that I ever will be, uh, actually, but, um, my, my day job is, uh, I'm a consultant, uh, management accountant for a few clients. So it's basically a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of working with, uh, budgeting and modeling and, uh, financial things, working with banks and stuff. And, uh, needless to say, it's actually been quite busy in light of the uh, all the coronavirus uh, uh, lockdowns and 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 craziness, because you know people <laughs> rather than just re rebudget their entire business to zero, uh, which unfortunately seems a lot of people are doing. Uh, you know, people need to make real choices and think about where they can cut and where they uh, need to cut. So I've been uh, been quite busy uh, these days, just helping some clients with that. So that that's what I do, sort of in the the day job. Um, and I I've been involved in Bitcoin. Heard about Bitcoin many years ago, uh, 2011 uh, was the first time I heard about it. But uh, I wasn't unfortunately, you know, piling in then. Uh, it was a very uncertain time in Bitcoin's history, and just sort of learning about it, thinking about it. Um, but always was uh, interested in free market economics, Austrian economics, and um, Bitcoin, you know, many have said, obviously, it, it sort of fits, fits uh, right into that, to that category. So, um, you know, just slowly learned it over the years, uh, a, a lot of the features of it, how it works, but I was always, um, always very interested in the monetary side of economics, you know, what, what really money is, how it works, how do you measure it, can we explain some things? Uh, can we learn some things from from these ideas? And uh, so, so that's that's that was sort of the genesis of the podcast and a lot of the the exhibits that you mentioned, the monetary base and those things. Uh, started doing uh, all of that uh, in January of 2017. Okay, interesting. Okay, so how I understood from you is that base money is the final settlement layer. And there is no further claims from base money, and it consists of bank notes and coins and bank reserve. That is others' bank account in central bank, right? Yep, yep, that's absolutely correct. Okay, so yeah, so so can you please briefly help us understand what is the difference between base money and M1, M2, and M3? So basic money is again um, that that is. Money, it, the 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 media has definitely evolved like over the centuries, over the millennia. Um, but the idea of of money in its most basic form is that it's not a claim on any other 
uh, institution or any other uh, uh, sort of business um, or any other third party even. It's just if you hold uh, that basic money uh, in the context of whatever financial system that you're sitting in, uh, that is final settlement. So for you know centuries we had we've had copper uh, based monies, silver based monies, uh, gold based monies, and um, and then you know as uh, most people relatively familiar with the uh, the evolution of this stuff knows um, over the last you know hundred years. Uh, we've slowly gone from any sort of commodity or metal-based system to one of purely fiat or purely government decree. So we've gone from something where um, at the basic layer, the basic level of the system where you know governments would settle with each other, central banks would settle with each other, uh, primarily gold in the last century, we went from that to purely fiat. And that was uh, pure... Uh, that was purely and completely severed that relationship in August of 1971. Most famously, uh, Richard Nixon uh, was having to deal with, uh, most notably, France. France was trying to get some of its gold back that the U.S. had held uh, since World War II. Uh, and the U.S. just didn't, uh, didn't uh, send it back. They said, no, we're going to move to a dollar-based system. So the the bottom layer, the basic level of the system that we're going to settle with each other now is, is going to be purely dollars. Um, and, and, and we, we severed, you know, we moved away from gold. So it's actually, it's very interesting that it's, uh, you know, in some of our lifetimes still, not in my lifetime or yours, but in, you know, some people's lifetime, uh, we had something that resembled a gold-based system. Uh, we no longer do uh, for the last 50 years. It's been purely, uh, purely fiat. So that's that's sort of the main uh, difference to be to be careful of when you start to talk about the broader money supplies. Now, so the basic, just getting to your question now, the the basic money, um, again today, as you said, it's 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 two things primarily. It's it's cash and coin or physical currency, and then in in the financial system we have today, it's also uh, what we call bank reserves, or as you said. Uh, kind of each bank in the system's bank account with the central bank. And for both of those items, only the central bank, you know, controls that at the end of the day. Central bank is the one that controls that. So that's the basic money of the, of the system. Now, everything uh, outside of that, any other account that any person has with um, any institution, you know, uh, think of, you know, when you log on to your internet banking uh, maybe it's called a checking account or a site deposit account. Um, anything that when you go into a bank, you say, you know, if you deposit a check, which is still fairly popular in the United States these days, if you deposit a check <clears throat> into an account, you are depositing um, uh, a claim into the account. And then when you, you know, look later on your internet banking, you'll see, you know, uh, X number of dollars or euros or uh, British pounds or Indian rupees, whatever it might be. Um, and the numbers that you're seeing on that screen are totally and fully in control of the institution that you're dealing with, primarily the bank. So the bank, uh, they, are the, um, they are the person that's taking your deposit and they are controlling that money um, you certainly, it's, it's, you know, this is a big debate among economists who like to debate about full reserve or fractional reserve banking. I, 
I think maybe we can hold off for that for now. But the, the main point is um, when you see that claim, when you see that number you know, in your internet bank, um, it's actually not your money at the moment. What it is, is it's a, it's a, it's a claim. It's a claim, so it's not basic money. There's no, there's no dollars there sitting in a, in a safe. There's no euros or, or pounds sitting in some safe in a bank. It's just being managed, mostly you know, borrowed from you by the bank and then uh, lent long by the bank so that the bank is in the business of borrowing and lending. They, they borrow the money from you at a, at a very low rate, basically uh, for nothing, uh, but they offer services in exchange for that. And then they, um, they lend out that money um, at, a, at a higher rate. And that's, that's how the bank uh, creates capital. That's how the bank uh, works in the, in the business of borrowing and lending. And, you know, in a, in a purely free market, banks could do however they want. They could lend to whoever they want. Um, they could decide how much basic money they need to sit in a vault in case someone wants to come and claim basic money, meaning, again, in this current fiat world would be cash and coin. Um, so that, you know, in a purely fiat world, or sorry, in a purely free market world, that would be uh, up to each individual bank uh, or money lender to decide. But of course, we have all sorts of regulations these days about what constitutes what account, uh, most advanced, certainly in the United States, uh, lots of regulations about what is what. And in the 60s, they started to develop these uh, for economists and for people studying you know, this stuff. They started to develop these ideas of the different M's. Paul Volcker was one of the leading people that actually developed this. He was the former chairman of the Federal Reserve in the 1980s, <clears throat> um, actually during a very important time of, of inflation, uh, which maybe we can talk about in, in the late 70s and early 1980s. But in any event, they started to map out um, these different sort of claims and, and to be clear, they're all claims. So again, when you deposit that money into a bank, it's not, it's not yours anymore in the same sense. What you have deposited is with the bank, but they can do whatever they want. They've borrowed the money from you, and you are actually the creditor to the bank in that specific transaction. So you have a claim. You have a claim on the bank's assets, the bank's investments, whatever the bank does, if the bank's prudent, if the bank's not prudent. That's just how, that's just how the system works. And that would work regardless of the system, whether you're in a fiat system or a gold-based system or a Bitcoin-based system. But, uh, you know, that's, that's how it works. So, so that's a long-winded answer of saying um, the most basic forms of claims are what is in, in M1, and those are what they call demand deposits or uh, the deposit account, the checking account uh, mostly. So the checking account goes in there. Uh, and then also currency that's actually not in banks, so most currency is actually not in banks, as some people may or may not know. So when you deposit some of that money, a very small portion is ever kept in the bank's vault. Uh, in most countries, in practically all, all countries, the vast majority, you know, 90% plus of that currency is just, it's floating around the economy. You know, it's, in, it's under someone's bed, it's in a, a grocery till, uh, uh, in, in a grocery store, it's in a, you know, it's in a retail store, it's it's in people's wallets. So those two things together. Uh, and, and so M1 is a bit confusing for people because it actually has, it's mixing claims and non-claims. So remember, cash and coin is not a claim. That's, that's, a, that's also a portion of basic money supply. And then you have the claim portion, which is the checking account. So that, that comprises M1. 
And then if you go farther away, you get to what they're called the broader money supplies, which are M2, M3. Uh, in the United States, for example, M2 includes uh, savings accounts, which pay a little bit of interest. You know, and these things are blending. They change all the time, right? Checking accounts pay some interest these days. But anyway, savings accounts, uh, you get the time deposit accounts where you actually for sure lock in your money up and you get a sp specified rate. And if you try to pull your money out any earlier, there'd be a penalty. Uh, and then, you know, you get to the broader uh, money supplies. Uh, the most broad would be called M3 or L. Those include things like money market mutual funds. You know, these think about how, you know, hedge funds settle when they sell stocks. Um, brokerage firms, you know, uh, hold a lot of those claims, not just banks. So you, you have this wide spectrum of the money supply. Um, but the, the thing that, that Fernando, my co-host, who uh, also is a big fan of, of monetary economics, lives in Brazil, and myself, we always try to make clear, and specifically in the context of the Bitcoin world as well, which maybe you wanted to ask that question about as well, but uh, the basic money supply is different than all of those others, M1, M2, M3, because the basic money supply doesn't have a claim. Uh, it, just, it just is. It just is the, uh, the basic uh, money of the financial system. Yeah, so how gen generally how bigger the claims are than monetary base? So let's say if monetary base is 10 trillion, how like how big generally are claims? Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it's very hard to measure um, when you get to the widest, broadest uh, money supplies. Uh, there's a few reasons for that. A big reason is what we call the shadow banking system. There are a lot of institutions that really aren't even banks. You know, think... Uh, Th think even PayPal, think Revolut, think uh, uh, Venmo or TransferWise. A lot of these payment institutions these days that are very large, they're not, uh, some of them have some sorts of regulations on the financial system and payment systems, but they're not even uh, banks, a lot of them. Uh, they may have some banking branch or whatnot, but they're collecting huge amounts of claims that really aren't even reported by by central banks. So that's that's one thing to keep in mind. And there are many companies that fit in that, not just those sort of main companies you think about that I mentioned. But uh, so, so that's one thing where it's it's hard to truly measure the broad, broadest money supplies. But the basic money supply, as as you mentioned, we've we've done pretty thorough analysis of that. Uh, I've collected uh, the top 30 floating currencies. That's about $20 trillion today. Uh, and it's growing very fast in light of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. People, you know, central banks are printing a lot of money for stimulus. So that's growing very fast every, every month. And it's going to be even a higher growth rate than it was from the Q1 release, uh, which I just, just did recently, uh, you know, come Q2 for sure. But anyway, that's $20 trillion is the basic money supply. The broadest money supply is at least $100 trillion in claims. So uh, that, that's... that's uh, that's just a general back of the envelope number. Um, yeah. So generally, generally it is like five times of the base money. Like we can't calculate, but generally. Right? Yeah, I I don't have a. a, a yeah, specific. Yeah, I don't have a, a multiple number and, and sort of I, I am working on this actually. I'm working on expanding the website and making it more slick and uh, it's a longer pro side project than I wanted to it to be but but I, I would like to get some sort of semblance of that number in fact that multiple um 
but at least the numbers that I have seen, the numbers that I have collected uh, as of right now, yes, it's about, it's about five times uh, larger than the, uh, than the basic money supply. Okay, so uh, do you think in Bitcoin world we will have the same, like same percentage of claims? Yeah, it's a great question. So the base money will be the the final settlement layer that is twenty one million, and after that, do you think we will have claims in the Bitcoin world as well? Yeah, yeah, it's an absolutely great question. Um, I suspect yes, uh, but I don't fully know the answer. But I suspect yes, we will have certainly a larger portion. I don't know if it will be five times, but um, there's two interesting things to say about that question. And it's a very interesting question. Um, the you know some of the early theorizers and cypherpunks in, in Bitcoin land, you know, primarily Hal Finney, I'm thinking of. They originally thought that. Uh, so, so again, as as we've said, that the the Bitcoin money supply, which eventually be 21 million coins, that. Um, that is completely analogous to the basic money supply in economics today, you know, in the fiat world or to, or to the gold, the gold world of the past or the silver world before that. Definitely, definitely, we got to think of Bitcoin in that, in that terms to make any sort of sense of it in the economy. Now, as far as claims, you know, we have them already today. So, uh, you know, if you have a, a Coinbase account or a Kraken account or a Bittrex account, you log on, you, you know, you put in your password, you log on, you look at the dashboard uh, in that account. That is a claim. It's absolutely a claim. And it's, it actually crystallizes for a lot of people that have trouble understanding this in the fiat world. You know, like if I put my dollars into the bank, you know, what, what's going on there? You can absolutely understand that with Bitcoin and that if you put that Bitcoin in there, uh, you know, if you deposit Bitcoin into Kraken or, or Coinbase, you no longer have control of it. You, you have some control. You can withdraw it. But you're well aware that you don't control the private keys. Uh, you can't really control what the exchange is doing with that money on the back end. Maybe they're lending it out short term. Maybe they need it for some liquidity reason. Maybe they need to pay some expenses that they didn't foresee. All sorts of things could happen with that money while it's sitting in the exchange. You certainly see that you have you know, 0.5 Bitcoin or whatever you deposited. You see it on your screen and and and... It's, it's definitely there. It's money. It's money that, you know, it's in the system. But what that money is, it's, it's a claim. It's completely analogous to you putting money in a bank and seeing it on the computer screen. So um, the, the original thought from those like Hal Finney, uh, Nick Zabo thought this originally as well. And I, I think he wouldn't exclude it from everything I've read of him, but I, I, I don't know. I, I think he's also changed. Uh, he's more of a fan of Lightning Network as well, which, which I am as well, but I, that's the second part I wanted to mention. But anyway, the original thought, like the early days, you know, 10, 10 years ago, thinking about Bitcoin and the financial system, uh, the original thought was, yeah, we pretty much would have, Bitcoin would be like the new basic money. It would sit in many big banks, many big exchanges. You know, people could pull it off and hold it like under their mattress if they wanted. But if, you know, if they wanted to earn interest, if they wanted to lend it, if they wanted to easily spend it without high transaction fees. Yeah, they'd be putting it into financial intermediaries, i.e. banks, exchanges. Um, and that, that, that would be how the Bitcoin system would grow. Now, over time, we had the development of the Lightning Network, um, which was uh, very, very interesting to see um, you know, how, how that could play into the system as well, because the Lightning Network 
is something that does not exist in the current economic world today at all. Because, you know, you, you, can, you can deposit money into a bank and, and come back the very next hour and withdraw it. You could do that. But with the Lightning Network, what you're doing is you're actually, you're locking that, that basic money fund in into this sort of, you know, frozen uh, in time. Yeah, this frozen in time sort of, uh, sort of escrow-like arrangement, but it's, it's, it's still slightly different in that you can immediately withdraw it if you want, but also locking it in time there and creating these channels, you know, this is multi, multi-layer, multi-sig scheme where all these coins can go around, you know, instantly with low fees um, or nearly no fees. That is just something that's completely different than the economic world today. And obviously, you know, it's digital. It's, uh, it's because of Bitcoin itself that we can do this. And there's all, just all sorts of little nuances there, technical and economic, that we just don't have that today. So that has developed in the last, you know, five years specifically as being a completely viable alternative for a sort of middle ground. I, I use that word a lot. Peter Todd described the lightning channel as that at one point on Twitter. I really like that word. It's sort of a middle ground state between it's not fully a claim, you know, because you're the one that's locking it. You're the one that's providing liquidity. You're the one that's managing the channels. Uh, but it's also not completely under your control because there could be problems that happen. You know, the security is a bit more, what's the word I want to use? It's, it's not as completely as secure as on-chain Bitcoin or waiting for confirmations, uh, sending on-chain Bitcoin with transaction fees that miners pick up. So it's a very interesting uh, new development that we really, really have never seen in the history of money is the Lightning Network. So I, I, like, I like to call that a middle ground state as well. Uh, we'll see how that develops. So again, I, I, tend to, I tend to ramble on these questions, but you asked about would we see claims in Bitcoin? I think, I think we probably will see claims. I think liquidities will be a claim, right? Yeah, yeah. Liquid, liquid. I would call. I mean, side chain. Li liquid is a side chain. Um, I, I would call a side chain the exact same thing as as Lightning Network as well. It's the same type. It's a, it's a middle ground state. There's a level of security that is that is uh, delegated to other people, you know, beyond your full node. And um, certainly the security is very high. You know, we can talk about the technicalities of all those things, but side chains, lightning network, um, you know, drive chains, th those sorts of ideas, they're all, uh, as far as I can describe in an economic sense, would be, again, this sort of middle ground state where it's not completely under your control, but definitely... Uh, very far from being a claim like you put your money into a bank and you know a third party now controls it uh, and could go bankrupt from it very different and you know you can you can withdraw those things in in just instantly instantly so it's a very different security economic setup than uh, than anything else so again uh, you could have claims just just like you have things like with you deposit money into coinbase that that's pretty much just like a bank digital bank for Bitcoin or you have these these side chains, uh, liquid, lightning, so on and so forth, uh, that are this middle ground state. 
yeah interesting so uh, let's come on to like uh, central banks and government now so the way i understand is that while creating new money uh, that is quantitative easing central banks create new money that is liability and they they do it by buying government bonds right yep yep so can you please tell the difference between fed or treasury or central banks and government when it comes to creating new money the central bank is an institution that is evolved over the centuries uh, bank of sweden the riksbank was sort of the first one this uh 17th century you know that came about then the bank of england was sort of the first modern central bank um but the bank is basically always there to support uh, the sovereign to support the state and yeah as you said that means uh if there's no one else to buy the government's debt, the central bank can step in and buy the debt. Now they do that. Um, they've done that pretty much constantly through the centuries. Uh, as again, as we get more advanced in the financial system, you know, there are certain, uh, certain nuances to that practice. Uh, but, but in, in all, uh, in all uh, practicality, as long as the central bank exists with the protection of the state, um, which is what every central bank in the world exists today, there's no central bank that's like sort of pro like uh, on its own and anybody can buy a share in it, right? The, these central banks are monopoly controlled. And again, a monopoly is just any business that has a license to operate from the state. So these are monopolies operated for the benefit of the state. And they, as long as they have that monopoly privilege, they can actually buy anything to create money. So they could buy government bonds, which they traditionally do, but they could also buy stocks like the Bank of Japan has done for many years. Uh, the Bank of Switzerland has done it. And now during the time of this uh, coronavirus, they're talking about buying corporate debt, corporate bonds, because so many corporations are hurting. And rather than see prices of those assets fall in the market, um, you know, certain interests would like to not see those prices fall. So a tool that they can do is they can create money and then buy those assets. And, uh, and that's just, that's how it, that how it, that's how it works. That's how, that, that's how it, uh, money is, is brought into the system in the financial world that we live in today. Okay. So whenever government, gen like, uh, government, lend the bonds or federal reserve buy the bonds how government are supposed to pay them back is it with tax money or they have other source of income to pay back those bondholders with interest when they when they take it from central banks uh they're always uh, those assets are uh always going to be subject to the terms of the agreement so in the case of uh, a bond the government would have to pay the bond back in, you know, two months, five years, 10 years, whatever the bond would be. And the same with uh, corporate debt as well. Uh, now that they're buying corporate debt, you know, they'd have to, uh, maybe they're floating these short-term bonds, which I guess most of them are during this, during this crisis. Um, if they can't pay that back during the maturity date, they'd either have to float another bond, meaning more, uh, you know, more debt would repay the old debt or they repay it from profits from the operations or from capital sales. Um, so it's, you know, it, it, 
most most of the time though that debt gets rolled over and more debt gets printed on top of it most most of the time okay oh, and when it comes to government spending how much percentage of that come from debt or quantitative easing or taxes individually uh well the um the size of the us government debt these days offhand it's close to 20 trillion actually i don't know right now let's just use the us example i don't have this for a world figure uh let me it's just check is it it's 25 trillion right the us debt I, I, around 25 I trillion. see yes correct 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 um including intergovernmental holdings yeah so the guy which is which is another sort of fiction but that, that that's actually so 20 19 trillion is what you would call the federal debt like that other parties own you know like companies and whatnot 19 trillion that 25 trillion is probably not even correct in itself because it includes uh what they call yeah these intergovernment accounts which are, are like you know social security medicare medicaid and those things are they're they're really valued in weird ways they could be much much higher <laughs> But anyway, let's let's stick with yeah. Let's just stick with twenty five trillion for an example. Um, the the Federal Reserve, which is the central bank of the United States, they have uh, six trillion in assets at the moment. But not all of those are government bonds. They have some real estate debt. They have some corporate debt, which they're starting. But in it, let's just say uh, I'll search it again really quick for you. I don't have that number offhand, but it the. Uh, but roughly, let's just say it's five. Let's just say it's five uh, that the central bank owns, and then twenty-five. Uh, five out of twenty-five is uh, the central bank portion of the debt. And there, t- there's basically two implications to that. Um, the first one is possibly inflation, because what they're doing is they're printing money uh, that didn't exist before to buy that asset. Now. If that new money was met with a demand from other people in society, then prices wouldn't rise. But if it's not met with an equal demand, then prices would rise. So that's just the basic economic consequence of printing money, is it it has a possible inflation. But the second effect, which is, you know, arguably just as important, is when it is when the government central bank steps in to buy more of the government's own debt or even debt. Like, like they're starting to do now, corporate debt, or they buy stocks, that pushes other investors out of that presumably relatively safe investment, right? And, and safe, I use the loose term, safe is a relative term. It can be safe for some people, not for others. But if that money wasn't there, presumably it was overvalued, maybe the price would fall, maybe people would lose their jobs, maybe people would lose their houses. I mean, it's, it's not a pleasant situation, but maybe it was overvalued, right? But when, when they keep printing money and then buying those assets, one, you risk inflation. And there's always inflation, no matter how the government wants to report it. We can talk about that in a second. And when I say inflation there, I mean price inflation. And then two is, is it really does, it pushes other investors in the market, other investors, uh, private, corporate alike, it pushes them further out on the risk curve because they, they can't compete with someone that can print money. They're always going to be first in line. Some of the prints money and once you know is there for the government or the people that are connected. So what it does is actually puts 
it pushes other people out towards riskier assets. So those are kind of the two primary things that, that you risk with printing, uh, with printing money to buying other people's, other people's debt that may not really be valued. Uh, so uh, what you make out of all these situation that is like central banks, central banks uh, are expanding their balance sheet. Do you think it is necessary because like the many people are saying that we need dollar right now because we are in deflation. So printing is fine. Like printing more money is fine. On the other side, some people are saying that it will lead to price price inflation and all that. So what do you make out of this situation right now? Yeah, I, I honestly, I wish I knew the answer to that question. Um, firstly, just just a quick aside, I did look it up. It's it as of the latest, the Federal Reserve holds four trillion in U.S. federal debt, U.S. federal securities. So out of that, let's call it the twenty-five. Um, or 19, however you want to look at it, or a much higher number, which is not reported, uh, the Federal Reserve holds $4 trillion. So that's just, that's a quick answer there. But um, yeah, I mean, back to the, back to your question about printing, printing money and the implications of it. Uh, it's, it's really, it's the only thing that central banks know how to do. You know, they always talk about these different tools in their toolkit, and they're going to come and save the day and so on and so forth. And I think if your listeners probably can catch on, like I'm, I'm a more conservative person. Like I, I like investments like gold or holding cash like gold, holding Bitcoin, which some people view as risky, but I actually view it as more of a hedge against gold or against the dollar. Uh, yeah, there are some people in the world that are more conserv- uh, more risky than I am. Some people are more conservative than I, than I am. But I, I tend to have that sort of view. Um, a lot of people say, people like me, people that are Austrians, people that uh, are into free market economics, like you're sort of doom and gloomers, or you want bad scenarios so your safe haven investments can do well. That's absolutely not the case for me. I mean, I'm here in Eastern Europe. You know, it's a war-tattered history. Um, you know, it's not, who knows what's going to happen in the next couple of years. You know, travel is shut down. It's, it's, not a, it's not a pleasant time. I mean, if you reflect, right, it's a... It's, it's a scary time in the world, both for people's health and for people's families and, and everything. So it's n- nothing is, you know, I don't feel good about a scenario where like a safe haven asset does well. I just want to make that point that that's, that's like a personal feeling that I have. But, but then what, what people do on the other side, though, the other extreme that makes the headlines in the news is say, well, we got to do something. We got to do something. We got to stimulate. We got to print money. We got to issue more bonds. We got to, you know, support all of these businesses that are failing to do this and this. And then, you know, as Milton Friedman said, you know, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You have the unholy alliance of the, uh, the do-gooders on the one side and then the special interests on the other. That's the unholy alliance that always happens with government. Because if you didn't have that special privilege, if you didn't have that monopoly privilege to bail out, uh, certain actors in the market, then arguably, arguably the prices would fall. Uh, businesses would become reorganized, uh, more, uh, profitable, equitable, uh, better behaving actors would step in. They would take over the businesses that are not run well, and you would have a, a revaluation. You know, you would, you would, you would have a, a, a different scenario in a free uh, in a free market. You know, another example that's often used is the brush fire, right? Like, you can you can you can stop forest fires from happening for fifty years, but if you would allow some of those small brush fires to happen, you would clear out 
you know, some of the bad things. So you would never get the massive, massive forest fire that's just devastating to everybody. And those examples, I think, are very good in economics. And I think that they're very true. Um, I'm definitely not a, a doom and gloomer. Like, I'm not a fan of bad scenarios in the market. I don't want them to happen. Um, but my view is the politically connected people that make the headlines in the digital newspaper that you read every day, they are the ones that are making our decisions, you know, unilaterally. There is no, we have no say in the amount of debt, you know, that the U.S. issues and the Federal Reserve buys. We have no, no say, whether you're American or, or, or Indian or British or wherever, they just, we have no say. So you, you have to, you have to navigate that. You have to do these analyses, I think, like look at how much money is, is printed to the effect that it's relatively transparent or findable. Uh, look at the rate of change of the money that's being printed and, you know, try to act accordingly. Um, but for sure, for sure, the only tool that they have uh, that they always use is just to paper over the, the losses, paper over the problems and to bail out uh, those that have not acted prudently or prepared themselves when bad times uh, come. So that's, that's what we have to deal with. Yeah. Okay. So what do you think are the possible practical ways to get out of this situation and shrink base money and let's say peg it to gold or Bitcoin or replace it with gold or Bitcoin? Yeah. Like what are you think are the possible scenarios? Yeah. So, so many, many economists over the years, well before Bitcoin, have talked a lot about repegging the dollar uh, to gold um, and trying to get a more sound currency. Uh, many Austrians have done this. Murray Rothbard has done this. Many, many economists over the years have talked about a, uh, a, a resolution of, of unsound money back to sound money backed by gold. Uh, I think that's that's uh, probably unrealistic, probably never going to happen. Uh, there's just too many diverging interests uh, in the politically connected world that would just never allow it to happen. And as much as some people might like gold to hold gold, and we see this obviously in, in, in India as well, in Asia as well, you know, the, the dowries and, and gold jewelry is such a strong form of family traditions. Those things are, are great. Yeah, those things are great to hold wealth, and I think they're very realistic, and they work, and people continue to do it, and it's true. Um, but to bring that back in sort of like a globally mandated uh, monopolistic system, which somehow works, and everybody uh, agrees on it politically, I just don't find very realistic uh, at all. Um, I find even less of, a, less of a chance that Bitcoin would do, would do the job there. So I think what that means is you have to deal with both systems, right? You have to deal with the system that is more the market has historically found to be money, you know, gold, silver, maybe Bitcoin in the future. You have to look at those systems and then you have to look at the fiat system, which is, uh, as I said, monopolistic, politically connected. Um, there's, I, I have pretty much zero hope that like a, a political resolution would happen in a, in a nice way. And I just hope, I just hope that we don't get, you know, devolve into worse things, you know, cause, uh, you know, that wouldn't be good for anybody. Yeah. So you think it can go on forever? Theoretically. Yeah. Th theoretically. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Fernando and I interviewed a uh, very good 
Spanish economist a couple weeks ago, Daniel Lacaya, and he said this, he, he mentioned that, you know, uh, no one wants the Argentinian peso, but they keep printing the Argentinian peso and immediately Argentinians take the peso and they sell it for dollars or they sell it for Bitcoin, they sell it for gold, you know, and you can do that. Uh, you can absolutely do that. Brazil has gone through like eight currencies in the last 50 years. Uh, Argentina, uh, Argentina, a similar number. Um, you can absolutely keep, keep printing these things, uh, keep, uh, keep, uh, keep inflating. You know, that's, that's, that's what you can do. You can keep inflating. And the, 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 the consequence, as Milton Friedman said, you know, inflation is, always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. What he means there is that the monetary base inflation, as what, what we publish on our website, fairly granularly, fairly specifically, um, at some point, if that gets out of control and it's not met by any other demand in the market, um, then you will have prices that rise. And the unfortunate rub is that price inflation is, is completely unpredictable. You know, I mean... It took a couple of months in, in Weimar, Germany for the, for the, uh, the Weimar uh, German mark to uh, just have the crack up boom and go, go crazy, you know, in the 1920s. It just took a, a couple months. And, um, you know, people think that it can't happen. Again, I'm not a doom and gloomer. I don't want it to happen. Uh, I think that in the digital world, in the politically connected world, in the Twitter world, there are a lot of checks and balances, perhaps even more than there were 10 years ago. Maybe we can, we can kind of keep things in line. You know, there was a, not to get on too many tangents, but there was a, a court ruling in Germany, might have heard about a couple weeks ago, that overruled a lot of the bond buying programs that the ECB was doing for years, actually now. This is before all the talk of euro bonds or corona bonds. Um, the German court said, you know, we... These are not in the rules of our system. Uh, this is basically debt that we can't account for in the fiscal budget, uh, meaning that it's not democratically elected. It's just the, the European Central Bank is doing this. This is not a democratic thing. And they, they gave them, I think, I, I don't know the exact thing. They said you, you have three months to, pr to prove that this is proportionally reasonable. Again, I have little hope for those things really, you know, anybody having a, a hard spine and, and, and backing that up. But it was a very interesting decision from the German, uh, the German Supreme Court because, you know, it's very easy. It's very easy to print. It's very easy to paper over things. It's very easy to say, this is necessary. We have to do it. We got to do it, do it, do it. We got to print, print, print. We have to do it. Um, it's very hard. It's very politically hard to, to take a stand and to, to stop that. We'll see what happens with that German decision. I'm not holding my breath for it, but there's a there's actually another parallel. Uh, this is a well-known story. Uh, you know, the the uh, FDR, uh, the United States, and the Federal Reserve together in the 1930s uh, suspended the gold standard as the most like hard nail nail in the coffin. It wasn't the final nail in the coffin, but they basically made gold illegal for any American. You had to turn in your gold. Most people didn't turn it in, but you had to turn it in. And um, they, you know, they, they basically revalued the amount of gold and they said gold uh, could not be used by private, private ownership in the system. So they did a lot of things to hurt the gold standard. 
And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. It was a very, it was a monumental decision, especially when FDR revalued, as in devalued, uh, the gold standard by like 66% when he did it. It was 20 bucks an ounce, and then he revalued it or devalued it to $35 an ounce. And um, that decision, like there was, it was monumental. There was reporters, everybody was trying to understand what was going to happen. The Supreme Court ended up issuing like three opinions. They gave the pro, it was a five to four vote uh, in favor of FDR, basically, to do it. They issued three opinions, one for the negative, one for the pro, and then one by the, the, the chairman, one by the chairman of the Supreme Court. None of them were like definitive. They, so three different opinions, you can imagine. <laughs> Usually the Supreme Court issues one opinion in a vote. They issued three different opinions on the, the, the legality of the case. Nothing was definitive. And if you read between the lines and if you sort of look into the merits of the case and what was happening, it's the Supreme Court's validity itself was challenged during that period. Like the Supreme Court, if they had overruled FDR, FDR was going to do it anyway. He was going to do it there would have been a, it was a constitutional crisis moment. Like he, he, there were plans, you can read all the history about it. There were plans to, to end the gold standard anyway, you know? And so all these creditors were like, look, we were supposed to get paid in gold that was, uh, you know, valued at this, right. Promised at this number of ounces, but now that you've devalued it, we get less ounces, uh, back, you know, this is, uh, this is, this is not good. And so it, all these sorts of things for like international creditors, all of these things, it was, a, it was a huge mess and they were going to do it anyway. And they did it and they did it. So that's a, that's a crystal clear example of where the Supreme Court, you know, the highest court in the United States, you know, the most free country in the world, they, they backed down to the executive branch and, and their own existence would have been thrown into like a constitutional crisis basically if they didn't sort of do what they did, which was basically a very confusing three opinion <laughs> decision. Yeah. So you think government will find a way to not let gold or Bitcoin become a standard? So where where do you place Bitcoin in that scenario? Like if, if Bitcoin never make is a standard, where do you place it? Is it a store of value? It will remain as a store of value. Where do you place it? Uh, good question. Um, uh, yes, I think governments, at least in the near, near term and midterm, they're never, they're never going to recognize Bitcoin as like uh, a currency. It can be an asset that they want to tax and do this and that, just like they do with gold. Um, but I don't think they'll ever recognize it. I think they're going to try to work on their own systems, these digital central bank digital currencies, which as well are an oxymoron. Uh, they're going to try to just keep bolstering up their systems, making their uh, fiat currency the only legitimate currency, challenging any anybody that tries to say different. And um, I think what that leaves you with is, quote, smart investors or people that are ahead of the curve, people, uh, you know, again, gold was $35 in 1971, you know, now it's $1,700. Of course, it's gone through many ups and downs since then. It's been 50 years. Many economists, when the gold standard fully ended in 1970, said, oh, gold would just go to zero, be a couple dollars an ounce. You know, 
the question is is actually rhetorical if you if you think about it over 50 years like there's just no way there's no way i mean i can't predict the future of valuation and markets and whatnot but there's just no way in the current environment that gold would go to zero dollars like unless we're talking about like alien invasions or some new metal is invented i mean there's just no way that 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 would happen and i think with bitcoin as well you would have you would have these um you would have these just sort of slow bleeds or uh just just sort of up definitely i'm not saying it's going to be a stable store of value you know it it, and most people argue that it's not at the moment you know it's been twenty thousand dollars of bitcoin in the last couple years it's been as low as three thousand in the last couple years so that that will continue um manipulation is not a word i like to use i think you know Governments do not save you from market manipulation. The only thing that saves you from market manipulation is competitors. <laughs> more competitors coming in to deliver better products, more stable pricing, more transparency, more uh, you know, more everything. So the only answer is to not do no- is, is actually to do nothing. It's back to the forest fire analogy, uh, analogy, right? The answer is to do nothing. Let the brush fire clear. Uh, let the unprofitable, unhealthy businesses fail. Uh, let the unhealthy governments fail, get reorganized, you know, recognize that you're not, you know, you're not able to just paper over these problems. And, uh, you know, but, that, but that's my answer to everything uh, it, <laughs> is to do nothing if, if I'm a government and to do everything if I'm a, if I'm an entrepreneur or a sole proprietor or working is, you know, just work your tail off to try to, f- to feed a market niche. And there's going to be plenty of market niches and, and things to do with the new world that we we're, we're coming into, you know, with travel and social distancing and all those things, certainly there's going to be amazing opportunities for a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, but again, I, the, the thing that I, I fear, and I don't want to sound too negative or, you know, but I, I do fear overreach and, and, and too many issues, uh, coming to the fore with, with governments, unfortunately. So let's we'll see. Okay. Yeah, that's more realistic than saying that you know we will replace all the fiat currencies and all this stuff. Yeah, maybe in three hundred, so, maybe in three hundred yeah. years, Vivek, maybe three hundred years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so before we wrap it up, uh, I have last question for you. So, what are the, some of your, uh, I would say, favorite books? Ah, good question. Very good question. Uh, I think the the best starter for Free Market Economics, Austrian Economics, this is pre-Bitcoin, is a book called uh, The Ethics of Money Production. The Ethics of Money Production is by Guido Holzman. Um, it's very, very good. And it describes things like monetary inflation versus price inflation and how you know money that's not met by proper demand does cause problems in society. And it's, it's written in a very, I think, early, you know, if you're a novice reader of economics and those things I just want to try to understand the lay of the land it's very very good also what has government done to our money by murray rothbard very good uh work in the same the same vein it's written a bit earlier murray rothbard died in 1995 but it's written a bit earlier than holzman's which is written in the 2000s um and then you know you can go down the line i mean anything on mises.org yeah m-i-s-e-s.org is is fantastic uh, I've even narrated an audiobook for them on Mises.org. It's uh, history of money and banking uh, from the colonial area, the colonial the colonial era to the 20th century. If you want to listen to that, uh, in the United States, 
Um, that, you know, plenty of books on Macy's.org. You can get them all for free. They're really, really good. Of course, the big textbooks, you know, Human Action, Man, Economy, and State, those get very, very technical. But I think uh, start with Ethics of Money Production, What Has Government Done to Our Money, uh, and probably Economics in One Lesson as well by Henry Hazlitt. Those are very good, good starter books. Okay, great. Yeah. Okay. So uh, can you please let people know where they can find you? Yeah. So uh, my website is cryptovoices.com, cryptovoices.com. You can find the base money exhibits there that we've been talking about, which are pretty detailed on the top 30 floating currencies in the world. Uh, Eventually, the website will really be scaled up, I think, for, for a lot more uh, user friendly and, and interesting charts and, and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. But cryptovoices.com. We also have a web, a uh, podcast, which you can find on you know, Spotify, Apple, wherever, uh, where we interview economists and primarily uh, talk about Bitcoin uh, in, in the role of a, a lot of the questions you've been asking me. <laughs> where does it fit in the monetary landscape? So cryptovoices.com or also basemoney.world. you find the same information, basemoney.world. Okay, so what do you mean when you say floating currencies? Like this is yeah. So those are yeah, sure. Those are currencies that uh, do not have capital controls. Um, there, there are various levels. This is an art and not a science when you talk about these currencies, for sure. Um, but if you look at the table, uh, if you go to basemoney.world, and I can just describe it for you, we have thirty currencies there, and most of them are. They either use the word free-floating or floating. Those are terms that are defined by the IMF. Uh, the difference between free-floating and floating are just a few capital controls, you know, like Brazil is floating, India is floating. It's not free-floating like the dollar and the euro. And that means that the markets aren't as deep, the markets are, aren't as liquid. There are more capital controls to get into an Indian rupee or out of, but not as much as, say, the Chinese yuan. So that's, that's one little difference. Uh, the Chinese yuan is actually the, the least floating in the table. It's called a crawl-like arrangement. That's, that's literally the word for the Chinese yuan. It, it's, it's been floating. If you look at a chart, you'll see that it's floating since 2005. Since 2005, it has been not pegged to, uh, I guess it was a basket of currencies it was pegged to before. Yeah, but, but it's certainly a managed currency. But it's a huge currency, so we have to have it on the table, and it's it certainly affects things. Um, the main difference is those all of the currencies you see on the table are basically currencies that, you know, the central bank is trying to support them on their own. Like there is no really uh, backing of another currency. Now this would be in contrary to something like the Hong Kong dollar. The Hong Kong dollar is basically the, the United States dollar. It it's just has different pictures on it. It's for local reasons or whatnot. It, the Hong Kong dollar is a currency board to the United States dollar. So it holds huge amounts of dollar reserves legally, like constitutionally. It does not act like a central bank, like the Federal Reserve, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority. Same would be the Danish central bank. The Danish central bank is basically the euro with different pictures on it. Uh, it has massive euro reserves. I mean, Denmark is in Europe, it's in the European Union. But for political reasons, uh, cultural reasons, they didn't agree to join the euro. So uh, the Danish kroner is a pegged currency to the euro. It's basically the euro. 
So that's what I mean when I say free floating. So yeah, you, you got to count the only the ones that are free floating to get sort of that true monetary base, uh, value. Okay, for sure. Okay, thanks for the explanation. And and thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to do this. Yeah, my pleasure, Vivek. Thank you very much for the chat. And uh, it, was, it was great talking with you.